0: guys, thank you so much for coming tonight. We are so thankful that each and every one of you are here to worship with us, uh, to come on out when it's raining. Not that that hinders college students because it shouldn't, the rain, it makes things fun. Caden, is that a wave to me? Good to see you, bro, you're looking good tonight. Well done, well done. Uh, My name is Steven and I'm on staff with The Salt Company here. And if this is your first time in particular, I wanna say welcome to Salt Company. If it's not your first time, then one of the things that you have probably picked up on by now is the fact that every single time I'm up on this stage, I end up talking about a very important aspect of my life. Any guesses? Yeah, Natalie, I do talk about Natalie. Colton got it, Isla and Jack, I love being a dad. Guys, we were cleaning up their toys in our basement last night and it took easily a half hour because we just let them destroy our basement. And at one point I just look at Natalie, I'm like, babe, I love being a dad. It is like my favorite thing in life right now. Second to being your husband, nailed it, almost missed there, but I didn't, it was good. But I love being a dad. I am constantly talking about it. It's the reason why I like either intentionally or unintentionally end up talking about them every single Thursday night because they are such an important aspect of my life. Like it was one of the greatest events of my life, November 7th, 2017, 1207, when Isla Ellen Jones entered the world. It was such a significant and meaningful event that I just cannot help but talk about it. It was huge. I mean, when I thought, think about the process by which a human is developed in the womb, it is mind boggling, like all the science, just to be a part of it, relationally, emotionally, it is an incredible event. And so the second that I received Isla as a brand new dad, I just start taking pictures of her and I'm texting pictures of her out to every single person that I know because I just want the world to know my life has changed. Something incredible has happened to me. I have witnessed an incredible event, life-changing event, and my heart is just full of joy and delight. And the most natural response, nobody had to tell me to do this, was to just tell people about it to share about this incredible event, this life-changing event that I had experienced. In fact, Laura Benson and I were talking about this and she said, oh yeah, I remember this event like we met at at one point while you were working on staff in Ames, I was up here in Cedar Falls and I didn't know Laura super well prior to working together and I just like, in the excitement of being a new dad, of having this new baby, I'm like showing her pictures, I'm like, Laura, check this out. There's Isla rolling, there's Isla smiling, there's Isla giggling. Like just going through all these pictures because it's just, I was so full of joy and delight. And she said, even at one point, I just start staring at the picture, forgetting that Laura is standing there. And I'm just like, oh, this is awesome. This is incredible. But guys, we do this all the time. When we experience an event in our life that is extraordinary, we cannot help but share about it. The most natural response in the world when we witness an amazing, incredible life-changing event is to tell everyone we know. I mean, your sports team wins the championship. Every one of your friends and every one of anyone, even strangers know about it. We just have this natural response when we witness something incredible to begin to share about it. It's just the most natural, logical response to witnessing something incredible. We're gonna start a series tonight in the book of Acts. And one way that you could look at the book of of Acts is that it documents a group of people's response to the most extraordinary event that they had ever seen in their life. It documents what they did in response to being witnesses of the life of Jesus Christ who for them, it was the most incredible, extraordinary thing that they had ever seen. And throughout the book of Acts, we will see over and over again, the very first Christians not able to help themselves sharing about what they had seen and heard in the life of Jesus. And in our text tonight, we are gonna see that Jesus gives them a commission, That in response to what they had seen, that they should be commissioned to go and tell. And we will see over and over again for the next six weeks that the disciples had no problem embracing this call. Why? Because when we have been witnesses of something as extraordinary as the life of Jesus, the most natural thing to do out of an overflow of joy and delight in who Jesus is, is to go out and share about him to go out and be witnesses of what we've seen. So if you got a Bible with you or your phone, go ahead and open up to Acts 1. And we're gonna see tonight that the disciples receive a task, that as they have witnessed this extraordinary event, they receive a task to go and do something with it in response. So if you got a Bible, Acts 1.8 is the first verse that I wanna point your attention to tonight. You got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Then the next book is Acts in your New Testament. The author of Acts was Luke. He also wrote the Gospel of Luke. This is basically part two of his account of Jesus's life and what happened after Jesus's life. Here's the verse that I wanna point out to you first. Verse eight, Acts 1.8, it says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. These are Jesus's last recorded words in the book of Acts. And before he ascends and goes up to heaven, he looks at his disciples and he says, I want you in response to what you've seen in my life to go and be my witnesses. This is the task that Jesus is inviting the disciples to embrace in response to, to what they had seen in his life. Go, be my witnesses. Where? Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And like I said, for the next six weeks, we are gonna see how the disciples respond to this commission as they have been witnesses of this extraordinary life in Jesus and see how they, the most natural response they had was to go and embrace this call to be a witness and share about it. And what I want this series to do in your life is in a similar way for you to see with more clarity who Jesus is, what he has done, and in response to what he has done on our behalf to embrace the call to be a witness that this task that Jesus gave his disciples in Acts 1.8 would actually be the commission of your life, that you would embrace being Jesus's witnesses to the ends of the earth, to everywhere where you are sent. Here's the reality though. I have found in my own life and in many of your lives and the people around me in their lives is that there are some common barriers to embracing this task embracing the task to be a witness. And so the main question I wanna ask you tonight as we look through this chapter, Acts 1, is this. What is keeping you from embracing the task of being a witness? What's keeping you from accepting the invitation to live your life for something greater than what the world tells you to live for and to embrace the call to be a witness of Jesus? That is the question for you tonight. And what the text is gonna show us tonight in the first verses of Acts 1 is that there are two common reasons people fail to embrace the call to be a witness. Two common reasons, that's what we're gonna work through tonight. The first one is that we forget the wonder of the resurrection. We forget how amazing and extraordinary the resurrection is. That's the first barrier that keeps many of us from embracing the call to be a witness. The second barrier that keeps many of us is that we forget the power of the Holy Spirit. So we forget the wonder of the resurrection. We forget the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's work through those. Look at Acts 1, 1 through 3, just the first three verses. Here's how it starts. I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, he, had, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Okay, so our first question, if the disciples were to be witnesses, what were they supposed to be witnesses of? What was the thing that they had witnessed that was so extraordinary that they would give their lives to telling other people about it? We'll look back at verse three. These disciples had spent the last three years and at this point they had experienced the most traumatic event of their life, verse three. It says, after he had suffered. The disciples for three years followed Jesus, did ministry with him, walked with him, saw him heal people, saw him teach, all those things. And then in the last month of their life, they've experienced the most traumatic event of their life. And what does it say? He suffered. These disciples had just followed Jesus for three years and they had witnessed him suffer, meaning that he had gone to the cross. The disciples had just seen Jesus die brutally murdered, crucified, hung on a cross, beaten, mocked, despised, all those things. And they saw the one that they had come to believe was the Messiah, the one who would redeem all of the world in Israel, hanging on a cross dead. They had seen him suffer. And at this point, after they had witnessed him suffer, were confused, disoriented, bewildered, no idea what to do because the one that they had followed is now dead. But it doesn't stop there. As they're hiding, a a couple women go to the tomb where he was buried. Look at this, what happened then? Verse three, after he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, speaking about the kingdom of God. The disciples see Jesus die. They see him buried. And then what happens? A group of them go to the tomb. They come running back and they say, the tomb is empty. Jesus isn't there. And then over the next 40 days, the disciples and others have encounter after encounter with the risen Jesus. The Messiah that they had been following, who they thought was dead, he had rose from the dead alive. And what happened? Why was it important when Jesus rose from the dead? What did that mean to the disciples? Well, first, it meant that everything Jesus had said was proven to be true. Every time Jesus claimed to be God, that was proven true when he rose from the dead. Second, it proved that everything he said he would do, when he said he would conquer death, that he would bring about the forgiveness of sins, that was proven to be true. Guys, as we were walking through the life of Abraham in the month of March, what did we see? We saw that in the beginning, God created everything, but humans rejected the God they were created for and because of that stood under condemnation before him. But what was the promise given to Abraham? It was that God would bring through Abraham's family, the Messiah to redeem the world, to bring forgiveness for our sins and restore our relationship to God. Jesus shows up on the scene and he says, that is who I am. John the Baptist says, see the lamb of the, who is gonna come and take away the sins of the world. When Jesus rose from the dead, he proved that he was the promised one of Abraham who would come and restore our relationship to God through his death and resurrection. So it proved that Jesus was God. It proved that we have forgiveness through him. It proved that death and the sting of death had been defeated. And it proved that Jesus is the exalted king who will reign forever and who is worthy of our lives. That is what is significant about the resurrection, that we have salvation, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is king, that he is the victorious one who is reigning. That is why the resurrection matters. And as the disciples experienced this extraordinary event They are filled with wonder and amazement. God had promised for 2000 years to bring salvation and he had accomplished it through Jesus. Jesus was the promised Messiah who came and lived the perfect life, died the death we deserved and was raised again on the third day, raised victoriously over death and sin. Why? So that we could have salvation. And the disciples are realizing this and it is blowing their minds. The wonder of the resurrection and it was an extraordinary event that filled them with delight, filled them with joy, filled them with hope and the most natural response and to, to, do, to respond to that is to leverage your life for this great king. To give your life to the Messiah who had given his life for them. So when they hear the task to be witnesses of that, they immediately embrace it. Of course, how could we do anything else but embrace this call to be witnesses of what we have seen and heard? Nothing else in life matters in light of what we have witnessed in the resurrection of Christ. And everyone needs to know. That is the disciples response. And that's the response that we should have. But how often do we forget the wonder of the resurrection? The reality that there was a divide between us and God, but God restored his relationship to us, not by making us pay the penalty for our sin, but placing the penalty of our sin on Jesus so that we could come into a relationship with him. And that Jesus defeated sin and death in the resurrection. How often do we lose the wonder of that? Guys, if you wanna embrace the call to be a witness, you have to remember the wonder of the resurrection, that God became man, died in our place, but didn't stay there, but rose victoriously from the grave. When we reflect and remember that, it will move us to a place to embrace the call to be witnesses of Jesus's life to the ends of the earth. It puts all of our life into perspective. Now here's the deal, you might be sitting there and you're like, okay, look, I get that. Here's the thing though, it's been 2,000 years since the whole resurrection thing. I get that the disciples saw that with their own eyeballs. I have not, so how can I know with any level of certainty that this happened? How can I know that what the disciples were convinced of is something that I can also be convinced of? Right, It said in verse three that Jesus came and gave them many convincing proofs. What are the convincing proofs for you and I 2,000 years later? Okay, I'm gonna pause for a couple minutes. Uh, This will be brief. It will be incomplete. It will probably not satisfy your wonderings about how to be certain about the resurrection, but I just wanna offer a few things that have helped me be more certain and to come to a place of certainty that Jesus did, in fact, raise again 2,000 years ago. Uh, Two authors in particular, because this will be brief, uh, that have really helped me. Tim Keller and William Lane Craig. Either of those two guys, if you can either find reason for God or reasonable faith, they have awesome chapters on the resurrection that work through the evidence that Jesus did, in fact, raise again. One of the arguments that William Lane Craig will make is that there are three indisputable facts about the resurrection about the events that occurred around the resurrection. And any explanation of the resurrection has to take into account these three facts. So the three facts are this. The tomb was empty. There were people that claimed that they had a post-resurrection encounter with Jesus. And then third, the movement of Christianity started. Those are three indisputable historical facts that are true that can be established outside of scripture. The tomb was empty. People claim to have encounters with Jesus post-resurrection. And third, Christianity started. Those are three facts. Now, any explanation, like I said, of the resurrection has to have what we'd say is the explanatory power and scope to account for those three facts. So let's work through those. The tomb was empty. Here's the reality. At any point, if the tomb was not empty that you wanted to disprove the resurrection, all you'd have to do is go take people by the hand, walk them to the tomb and say, hey, here's Jesus's body, not empty. That doesn't happen. The immediate response of people who were anti-Christian, the Jewish leaders at the time, when they find out that the tomb is empty is not to take people to the tomb and prove the body is still there, but instead come up with plausible explanations for maybe the disciples stole the body. Second fact, there were claims of post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. So in a letter written 15 to 20 years after the resurrection, it's called Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, the apostle Paul writes a public letter that would have been widely distributed at that time, 15 to 20 years later after the resurrection, and claims that there were multiple individuals that he names by name in 1 Corinthians 15 that saw Jesus or claimed to see Jesus, and that there was even a group of 500 people who saw Jesus at once. Now, here is why that's an indisputable fact. This letter was a public letter written very close to the time of the events of the resurrection. If those encounters, if people, if those claims to have a post-resurrection encounter with Jesus didn't actually happen, any one of those over 500 people could have said, yeah, I never said that. I didn't actually claim to have that. Now, at this point, you might be like, okay, those are facts. Easy explanation. Disciples stole the body, fabricated the whole story. There you go. Empty tomb, post-resurrection encounter claims. Easy. Here's the problem with that, though. That hypothesis does not take into account the third historical fact, which is Christianity started. You see, the problem with that is for a movement of Christianity to start, if you were going to start and fabricate a movement, there are too many elements that don't add up in that explanation. First, there's too much counterproductive material in the New Testament for them to be fabricated. There's too many instances where the first leaders of Christianity look foolish, look dumb, make mistakes, look disloyal to Jesus. If you were Peter and Paul and all those guys, you wouldn't make up you looking really bad if you were making up Christianity and trying to convince people to follow you. Too much counterproductive material. Another example would be the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection are women. Now, at this point in the first century, a woman's testimony wasn't even permissible in court. In fact, one ancient historian who was an atheist or didn't believe in Christianity completely rejects Christianity on the basis that it relied on the testimony of women. Again, if you are making up Christianity, you wouldn't make your first eyewitnesses people that don't even have a testimony valid in court. Second, there's no perceivable benefit for the first disciples to start Christianity. The vast majority of the early leaders of Christianity lived very marginal, hard, challenging lives that often resulted in being martyred for their faith. And wouldn't it be for the, until the fourth century when Constantinople or Constantine with Constantin, Constantinople made Christianity the public religion that Christianity was even publicly acceptable? So it'd be hundreds of years before there was any perceived political power to being a Christian, any perceived money power or money like benefit, any benefit at all. It's very hard to come up with a plausible reason what benefit these guys would have to go to their death for something that they fabricated. You see, people die for false religions all the time. But the reality is when someone is willing to die for a religion, what that means is they themselves believe it's true. Doesn't mean that it's true, but it means that they believe it's true. And if they fabricated the entire New Testament and then went to their death after receiving no benefit, that is very hard to explain outside of the fact that they themselves believed it was true. And if that's the case, then they want to have been the ones who stole the body and they want to have been the ones to make this all up. So where does that leave us? It leaves us at this the resurrection as recorded in the New Testament is the most plausible explanation that takes into account those three facts. And there is yet to be an alternative explanation that adequately accounts for those three facts with the explanatory power and scope that the resurrection as recorded in the New Testament does. Okay. Back on. Okay. Resurrection. Guys, we have to keep a wonder at the resurrection, who Jesus was, who he said he was, and that he rose victoriously from the dead. Here's the second common barrier though that we face when it comes to embracing the call to be a witness. We forget the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you experienced what I did when Isla was born, you would expect that immediately I would do what I did, which is to tell everybody. That is what you expect. We're about to see something very unexpected in this story, a twist that we would never have anticipated. Look what happens. Jesus in verse three convinces them with many proofs that he did in fact raise from the dead. They now witnessed an extraordinary event and look at what the very first command he gives them is. Verse four, while he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the father's promise which he said, you have heard me speak about for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. Guys, they have witnessed an extraordinary event. What do we expect Jesus to say? We expect him to say, go, tell everyone you know, go crazy, spread it to the whole world. But what does he say? What's the very first command that Jesus gives his disciples as they have now witnessed this extraordinary event of the resurrection? Don't leave, wait. Guys, at Salt, we are constantly talking about how you need to go, how you don't need to wait, how you just need to go, be sent, have that mindset. But what's the very first command that Jesus gives after the resurrection? Don't leave, wait. Now, what is up with that? Why would Jesus have that be his very first command? The reason is Jesus knew that the disciples in and of themselves were lacking the very thing that they would need to accomplish the task he was sending them on. There was something that they were lacking. If they were gonna have any chance at accomplishing this task that Jesus was sending on, they were lacking something very important. What was it? The Holy Spirit. They were lacking the power of the Holy Spirit. And even if they got a head start on sharing the gospel, it would, be, it would do nothing if they were not first empowered with the Holy Spirit. You see what it says in verse eight? For you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses. Now, why do we need the Holy Spirit to do that task? Why? Well, think about it. Ephesians 2 tells us that the condition that each and every one of us is born in is what? We are dead in our sins. And our goal is to see people come to new life in Jesus. Now, how good are we at taking people who are dead in their sins and bringing about new life? It's impossible. That's an impossible task for you and I to do. It'd be like sending you out to a construction site with no tools and saying, build a house. We can't do that. We don't have what it takes to accomplish that task. Jesus is saying, I am sending you on a task that is actually impossible for you to do under your own strength, to see people go from death to life in response to the gospel. So what do you need to undertake a supernatural task? You need a supernatural strength, the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's the reality. When you put your faith in Jesus, you were indwelt by the spirit of God. Romans eight eleven says that the same spirit that rose Christ from the dead now dwells in you. The same spirit that was hovering over the waters at the beginning of creation now dwells in you. Is that insane? That's mind boggling that each and every one of you who are in Christ is indwelt by the spirit of God. Now, here's a text issue. There's a question here that comes up. In verse five, what does it mean to be baptized with the Holy Spirit? Now, some churches would say that being baptized in the Holy Spirit is a second spiritual experience that you should wait for after your conversion. When the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will begin to be empowered to do phenomenal gifts in a way in which ordinary believers can't do we would actually reject that view of what it means to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. First Corinthians 12, 13 says that you were baptized in one spirit and one body. What it's saying is when you entered one body, that was the time in which you were also baptized by one spirit. So what's happening here is in this transition moment from the Old Testament to the New Testament, God is highlighting the reality that people are indwelt by the Spirit in a new way. So throughout Acts, you'll see people having these second encounters or where they're filled with the Holy Spirit in a unique way, but it's to highlight the transition from Old Testament to New Testament. Now, why do I say that? I say that because 2 Peter 1.3 says that everything pertaining to life and godliness, you have, The second you put your faith in Jesus, you are indwelt by the Spirit of God and empowered to walk in holiness of life, empowered to fulfill the task of being a witness of the resurrection. You don't lack anything. And I wholeheartedly wanna reject anyone that would say that you are missing something if you really wanna be a mature Christian. No. If you became a believer last week, you have everything that pertains to life and godliness because the spirit of God indwelt you the moment you put your faith in Jesus. You have a power to be a witness. How does this end? Verse six, it says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom of Israel at this time? Verse seven, he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or periods that the father has sent by, set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What is keeping you from being a witness? What's keeping you from embracing the call to leverage your life for something so much greater than the things you're tempted to believe will bring fulfillment in your life. The things that you are tempted to believe are the reason you are put on this earth. Guys, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Does that fill you with wonder and worship and awe? Because there is a power that indwells you as a believer that means right now you have everything that pertains to life and godliness, to embrace the call to be a witness of Jesus. What is keeping you from leveraging your life for the sake of Jesus, for embracing the call to be his witness to the ends of the earth? I love both my grandfathers. My grandpa Graber was a carpet cleaner in Des Moines his whole life. And in the middle of his life, he became a Christian. And what it looked like when he understood the call to be a witness, what that looked like for him was to every day share the gospel with as many people as he could as he cleaned their carpets. It's just what he would do. He just, he has shared the gospel with more people than I think I will ever have the privilege of getting to share the gospel with. He's been a faithful witness in Des Moines his whole life. And everywhere he goes, he continues to see people with an eternal lens. My papa, when he became a believer at age 14, he heard the call to be a witness of Jesus. And what that looked like for him was to go and get trained to be a missionary and to go down to South America in the 50s, to start a Bible college that would train pastors to go into the jungles of Guyana and Brazil, to share with people the gospel, to teach them what it looks like to follow Jesus. That's what it looked like for him to be a witness. Because I don't know if your call to be a witness means being in Des Moines your whole life and seeing your job, your day job with an eternal perspective. I don't know if your call to be a witness involves going to a really hard place that you would have never imagined finding yourself, but doing something that has eternal value and worth. But what I do know is that every single one of you has been called to have a relationship with the God who created you And then to turn around and in response to that extraordinary truth, be a witness of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I so often lose the wonder of the resurrection. God, just the things in my life crowd out my worship, my awe, my wonder at the reality that you entered into this world and rose again. God, that you took my sin on the cross so that I don't have to bear it. And God, when you rose from the grave, you declared it's done. The penalty has been paid in full. You, are, you rose for our justification. God, our right standing in, with you. And God, so often I forget the reality that you now indwell in me that the spirit of God dwells inside me. God, there's so many moments where I feel inadequate to do what you've called me to do. I feel inadequate to carry the things that you've called me to carry. I feel weak and unable to have an impact that I want to have. But God, in that moment, I'm forgetting that the task is impossible for me, but for you, it's not. And God, that I now have the opportunity to allow you to use my life, to accept the invitation to leverage my life for something greater. God, I pray that we would see that the most natural response to an event as great as the resurrection and a truth as great as being indwelt by the Holy Spirit is to turn around and embrace the commission to be witnesses of Jesus to the ends of the earth. God, I pray that there would be people in this room who go to a day job that maybe in the eyes of the world looks insignificant, but that it would be filled with significance because they have an eternal perspective to use it for your glory. And God, that they would see people at their day to day, nine to five, with an eternal lens. God, that they will not just go through this world living for the things that the world tells them to live for, but that, God, they would see the people that you've surrounded them with as eternal beings who are created in your image and for your glory, and they would use their life to be a witness, trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit to bring about new life. God, I pray that there would be people in this room who go to hard places and do things that are unimaginable or unthinkable, God, that they would go to places like the Middle East, that they would go to unreached people groups, that they would go like we saw Anna and the bakers going to Thailand, that we, they would go to places like Japan. And God, that there would be people and scores of people that would be in heaven because someone in this room heard the call to be a witness to the ends of the earth and they responded in faith and trust to do that. God, let us be people that don't look back on our life and see that we live for something so fleeting and so vanishing. But let us be people who in response to the resurrection say, oh my word, what a God we serve. You are worth my life. You are worth my everything. Use me.